Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today, we have an amazing guest, David Matheson, who is the CEO and founder of the Chief Digital Officers Club and Chief Digital Officers Summit. David is the world's leading authority on anything Chief Digital and Data Officers, and he has taken this organization globally, and that's why we're very happy to have David with us in our studio. David, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Great to join you. Wonderful. Uh, you know, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to global and global marketing and global entrepreneurship. And I felt that our audience could immensely benefit from your presence, from your uh, interview. Uh, very quickly about your background. Um, you've done a lot of different things, very corporate and very entrepreneurial. You um, have a degree from Columbia University. You've done work for major brands like Thomson Reuters. Connecta, later on Oracle. You've traveled all over the world. Uh, you've been um, involved with the United Nations. You've uh, been a speaker. You published a book uh, called Be the Media. By the way, our audience will be um, uh, very <clears throat> interested to know that a lot of the links to these resources will be available on the landing page um, next to this recording. And uh, David, then you decided to, you know, to, to go in, in a very different direction, in the direction of entrepreneurship, and start a Chief Digital Officers Club. What is that path? Tell us a little bit about that wonderful path from corporate uh, academia to being an entrepreneur. Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's great to join you and uh, uh, really appreciate your, your kind comments. You know, my core background is uh, very entrepreneurial and both at startups and at large incumbents. And certainly when I, you know, joined, first I was one of the first 10 people hired at a startup, which really cut my teeth on being an entrepreneur. You know, we were, we, uh, were a very small company that uh, in the late 1980s, we had uh, created a natural language search interface into complex data, medical data. So if you typed in AIDS, we'd map you into acquired immunodeficiency center. If you typed in you know, heart attack, we'd map into myocardial infarction. So this way, doctors and nurses were getting, you know, relatively sophisticated searches on complex databases without the need for a medical librarian. And, you know, that company took off. I was a young kid at Columbia, you know, doing this part-time. And every time the CEO of that company, you know, hired a new employee, he would rent out a new apartment in this, you know, six-store walk-up on 110th and, and Amsterdam, pretty rough neighborhood back in the day. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, boom, he had moved into Fred the Furrier's old fur vault in the garment district. And this was well before, like 10 years before Silicon Alley, you know, got that name. He was one of the first pioneers in that space. And we literally cleared out Fred the Furrier's old fur vault and put a bunch of servers and, uh, you know, open desk arrangements. So forget it. From that point on, I was hooked. You know, I was really hooked on tech. And uh, I worked for both large companies like Reuters. So in the mid-90s, you know, they saw the Internet coming, which would be a threat to their global satellite distribution system. I saw it as an opportunity. So I created a number of business plans really quickly, doing Agile before Agile, you know, using uh, metadata before metadata, really pioneering RSS, a really simple syndication, four or five years before that acronym even came out uh, for Reuters. So at that time, you know, I built about five or six products for Reuters. They were delighted. You know, you normally took five to 10 years to build products at big companies. I was turning stuff around in months. And uh, this was 95 to 98. And I decided, you know, I'm going to jump out. And with Reuters blessing, I went out from New York, left for the West Coast, 
pack up my bags, Beverly Hillbilly style, and uh, raise $30 million in two years and uh, basically productize that for other companies, that syndication technology. And that eventually got bought by Stellant, which was bought by Oracle for $440 million in 2004. So at that point, I kind of took a little bit of time off and wrote a book, but found my way back to New York. And uh, to answer your question directly on you know, how did I get here, I just happened to start seeing that CDOs were being hired at this you know, incredible pace. And yet there were a couple of big sectors that should have been paying attention that weren't. Those two big sectors were the big consultants, Accenture, Capgemini, you know, McKinsey, IBM, uh, you name it. And then on the other big group was um, the, the consultants like Gartner and Forrester and IDC and others, which really, they didn't really have a dedicated digital practice, let alone data. And the same, the, at the same token, you know, executive recruiters should have been paying attention because there is a tremendous demand and very little supply for seasoned executives who've been through this. So, you know, I incubated this uh, CDO club and CDO summit at a, a boutique executive search firm in New York City, Ellen Group. I uh, presented it at the Harvard Club, you know, my presentation on this in 2011 to a group of F50, Fortune 50 CHROs. And they were so enthusiastic about me continuing, you know, the research that I eventually, you know, left uh, Ellen Group and started the CDO uh, club in 2011. And then two years later, we started doing summits. And and we got to the point where we we're doing CDO summits just about every month somewhere in the world, eight years in New York, five years in Tokyo and Tel Aviv, three years in Sydney and, and, uh, and London and Amsterdam and other places. So, you know, just a, a really good reception to this. And now with COVID, you know, the great quote, Alex, and I'll leave it there, is, is the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, you know, famously said a couple of weeks ago that, you know, digital transformation agendas that were going to take a few years have now been compressed into a couple of months. And that I think, you know, just is, is exactly summing up the current situation we're in. Chief digital officers in particular are being called on to do these Herculean tasks, you know, like, okay, you know, within the next week, we got to get 80,000 people to, out of our offices in New York City and into, you know, work from home situation. It needs to be private and secure and 24 seven availability. Boom. You know, things that were on the, digital transformation horizon that would have been like nice to have, you know, three or four years from now are now like being fully implemented. So these are crazy times. And uh, the, uh, you know, sad news, obviously, with millions unemployed and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying, it's, it's no time to, to gloat or boast. But certainly this group and this community is being called on in an unprecedented way to helm the ships and get them through these uncharted territories hopefully safely. Very true, very true. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I've noticed the same thing that a lot of the companies, uh, if, if part of their agenda was growth, expansion, acquisition, mergers, and so forth, now it's about relevance. It's about uh, yeah. how do we stay relevant? How do we, uh, you know, how do we leverage what we have and how do we leverage what's in front of us under these uh, very difficult circumstances? How, you know, share with us, you know, you, you, you have an, a unique ability to rub elbows with all of the major, you know, brands and then heads of uh, digital, which is an extremely important part of uh, any business. Tell us a little bit more about what are some of the companies, what are some of these companies doing to uh, speed up this transformation and or to become what to stay more relevant? Absolutely. And um, 
I think your uh, your community will benefit from a link that uh, that uh, you'll be sharing, which is a, a, a just a one hour video, and and my portion of that is just 15 minutes, and I promise you, take a look at that video, and in 15 minutes, uh, your your listeners will get caught up to speed over the last 10 years of me doing deep dive research on this, and and quite frankly, the big news was this: what Q1 2020 was by far. Uh, the best quarter that digital and data people have ever had. And I'm going by that by real numbers. I mean, I'm not looking at profitability. We're not going uh, looking at this of profits over people. Quite, quite the opposite, Alex. This experience over the last quarter has really put people over profits. I mean, staying safe at home. So what does that entail for a chief digital, a chief data officer? Well, it could be getting folks, you know, working from home. But our our background on this space has really been from leadership and not technology because technology is changing so fast. It's the leaders that are the ones who are going to drag these analog companies into the digital age and, and hopefully get them through this pandemic. And uh, if they go to that link, there are actually two really good links on there on my uh, portion of the landing page that says exactly how are chief digital officers dealing with COVID-19? And number two, how are our chief data and analytics officers responding to COVID-19? And because it's such a deep question, and it's T-shaped, right? It's, it's wide and it's deep. What, what I've done is I've compiled it as sort of like a best of. So, for example, you know, in that article, you can see links to uh, a piece by the global head of consumer business at the Weather Channel um, uh, on to how to track the pandemic. Of course, you know, the Weather Channel has so much, you know, data that we can use that's important. Uh, right now. Same thing with uh, LL Airlines. You know, he wrote a piece, the chief data officer there on do's and don'ts during a crisis, you know, from a data perspective. So I think, you know, rather than get into all that kind of level of detail on this call, it really depends on what sector people are in, what companies they're in, what their cash position is, now how, whether or not they're going to be able to last, <laughs> you know, talk about a lot number of higher education universities, you know, not coming back. So these are unprecedented times, but I hope that those links will give your listeners a view into it across a couple of different companies and sectors, including by, by uh, not, not small, no small token, by the nonprofit community and, and uh, groups like Centers for Disease Control, for example, nonprofit organizations that really have a leading role to play in this. You know, in April, they put up an advertisement that they were looking for a chief data officer. You know, we were kind of scratching our heads and saying, wait a minute, you guys didn't have one already. Uh, but again, you know, the need for these people is uh, people with data, digital and security skills is such in demand right now. And that just got ratcheted up, you know, by an order of magnitude because of the COVID situation. Very, very interesting. Um, so you mentioned something that's really interesting that uh, a lot of the digital transformation plans and strategies and so forth have been accelerated and literally compressed by not just months, but even in some cases, years, right? So how is this possible? How is this possible that companies that have been planning and strategizing to do this over the next three to five years are now doing this in a matter of weeks, in a matter of months? Uh, it's amazing, what, what, isn't it, right? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. <laughs> and does, that, does, that mean, does that mean that there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of cushion in there? Or does this mean yep. that, you know, and, and things can really be done when stressed? Or, I mean, what, what, what are some of the learnings that, that we can get from this? 
Yeah, simple answer was they were forced, right? And if they weren't forced into it, it would have been business as usual. What does business as usual usually consist of? It's driven by the sales and marketing team. And so, you know, up until COVID hit and the stay-at-home order, really, and the quarantine hit, uh, it was business as usual. You know, how do we keep uh, the pipeline moving? How do we continue to get revenues in here? It wasn't looking at, uh, look, there are four cornerstones to successful digital transformation right? One is increasing revenues, right? Taking analog company or analog products and, and turning them into digital. Two is lowering costs. So one is increased profits, do lower costs. Three, cut expenses. Three would be um, improving customer service, you know, through chatbots and through online services. And then four is um, uh, op improving your operational efficiencies. So I would say like work from home, where did that sit? Was it, you know, was it top priority for the sales and marketing team? No, you know, the, the, it was always numbers driven, but now, I mean, they were forced into it. They had to do it. And it just goes to show that it wasn't that big of a deal that, that you could, if you really wanted to prioritize, and by the way, that goes into uh, number two, which is cutting costs and number four, which is improving operational efficiencies. Both of those still lead to increased profits. You don't have to do number one, you know, and increase revenues uh, to improve your, your margins. You can cut costs. So I think they were, you know, big companies were forced into making a decision that they thought was a nice to have. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't, they, and big factories trust. Do we trust our employees to be able to do the job if they're competing with, you know, the laundry and feeding the cat and the kids? And uh, I, I will, speaking from 30 years of experience, I will say that working from home, it's a self-selecting group. You know, there are people, like I've got people in my organization, we've always been, we've always worked from home, we're a virtual company. But the people that I choose to work with me, they need to show loyalty, consistency, dedication, passion. They need to go beyond what's expected. You know, and I pick my employees that way, that I don't need to micromanage my employees, but you and I know, there's a lot of employees who get distracted by the shiny new, hey, look over there, it's a squirrel, you know, and those are not the people you want on your team right now. So I think we are going to start seeing, we're, we're already seeing the furloughs, we're already seeing the layoffs. I think the, the companies that will survive will be those are the ones that can figure out, you know, who are those people, those all-stars that can work from home and actually be more productive instead of less. Very, very interesting. Uh, before we get to your travels and your, um, you know, your global and uh, ex experience with different countries, uh, let's just stay on this topic for just a little bit. Let's sort of take out the crystal ball and David's crystal ball. So we're let's fast forward six months, you know, twelve months. Yeah. Do you think that companies will go back to the way that they've done business before, or do you think that they will, you know? tremendously modify the way that they need to sort of adapt to the new digital economy, the, uh, you know, optimization efficiencies, um, as you just mentioned, you know, optimization of resources, making sure that indeed the employees who are working remotely or continue to work remotely will be true to what they need to do. I mean, look at Twitter. Twitter just announced that yep. all of the employees yep. can continue to work from home. What does this what what does this take us? Yeah, I think that's the direction. I think just about everybody is just about every large company is rethinking, you know, commercial real estate and whether you need to have those multi-million dollar month leases on office space in New York City when no one's coming in and you know 
uh, it, it gets harder and harder. So I think the smart ones will survive. Let's go back to, again, that 15-minute that presentation I gave uh, that, that your listeners will have a link to. But in that 15 minutes, I listed the potential successes and the potential failures, you know, if we take that crystal ball out six months. We're already seeing the failures, right? So by that, I mean those that are at risk, those sectors at most risk. And we've already named a couple, but certainly airlines, anything related to hospitality, anything that's going to involve foot traffic, come physical foot traffic, walking through the doors of the corridors or the runways, those companies are all going to have serious issues. J. Crew already filing for bankruptcy. You know, the Gap, we've got serious issues at Bed Bath & Beyond, you know, on and on and on. But all of those companies that I just mentioned were all the ones at most risk for digital transformation anyway, right? Those are the ones that are being outclassed and outgunned by Amazon and online shopping. So it's, again, this, this push that was inevitable that may have lasted years has now been truncated. So again, going back to those sectors at risk, airlines, hotels, hospitality, bars, restaurants, uh, venues, you know, look at me, I'm in the events business as well as our global community. That whole business is completely changed. And even if the quarantine or the stay at home was lifted tomorrow, taking out a crystal ball and trying to, to figure out when people will be able to get over that psychological barrier of going to an event, you know, hopping in a car or getting on a subway and taking a train and booking a hotel and meeting 200 people and getting on the subway and going backwards in the whole way back home. When do you think you'll be willing to do that, Alex? You know, so I think it's a personal question that makes it really hard to forecast. But that, that would be the, the ones that are at risk. Now, the, the, the sectors that are going like gangbusters would be, you know, any of the techs so of Google, Amazon, Facebook. Uh, they all announced quarterly earnings. Uh, Amazon, Apple, they're going through the roof, right? Better quarters than they had this time last year. And then other sectors that are doing well. Look at DoorDash, just hired another 175,000 shoppers. You know, Amazon just hired another 200,000 people. So, you, you know, the certain sectors are doing well. Now, having said that, even the sectors that are doing poorly, we still see the chief digital officers are playing a critical role. So even after those companies cut all the discretionary expenses, T&E, travel, you know, going to events, flying on planes, and now they're starting to cut, you know, labs, innovation, strategy. The good news is a lot of these digital people are staying on right till the very end. As you know, when big companies go bankrupt, the key people that they keep, you know, on very, very lucrative contracts are those that they know are strategic to the, you know, survival of the company. So even in the, in the sectors that are having a tough time, we are still seeing that digital people aren't really going out of work. By the way, I usually get five to 10 emails a week from people at the C-suite who are either, who either know that their time is limited at that company or who are looking, actively looking. I used to get five to 10 of those a week. I only received one email from someone on my, in my community who's, who was laid off. I can't say the company, but it was in the retail sector. It makes sense. But that's unusual. So again, you know, it's like an upside down world, Alex. The whole world has gone upside down. And yet chief digital and chief data officers seem to be even more in demand now than they were in before. It does make sense, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And by the way, the other at-risk sectors include stuff that you wouldn't think. Like, I mean, maybe people in college would think about it, but certainly higher ed. They're going to have a very hard time making a comeback, getting students and teachers back into classroom settings. So I think the ones that are already doing, you know, MOOCs, the MOOCs will be fine. The Coursera's and the cons, people are signing up like crazy, right? Uh, for things like that, as well as, you know, Slack and Microsoft Teams and any collaboration tools. Those are all doing fine and will we'll be doing well. But and, the question is, is life. 
Yeah, it's not just higher education. I mean, I'm, I have uh, two kids in, um, you know, in, uh, in one is in high school, the other one is in uh, uh, intermediate school, and, and I'm not sure if they want to go back, I'll be honest with you. They're, they're having a great time uh, doing this remotely. They're also playing games. I mean, the gaming industry is going gangbusters. Um, and they're, um, you know, they're actually, they're doing more work because they don't have to spend the time traveling back and forth. They're doing more work um, uh, digitally and uh, via this digital and, and interactive type of uh, communications with the teachers than they would have done in the classroom. Of course, it's difficult to replace this type of interactive you know, human interactive type of communications. It, it, it sure. makes sense to, to return to that, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon, or if it will, it's going to be very, very different. Um, well, I know this is a kind of a conservative outlook, but having you, you and I, we've been through downturns, you know, in 2008 and, you know, other, you know, Y2K, you know, we've been through some crazy issues, but in my opinion, I'm, you know, I'm conserving cash for a two to four year downturn. And, you know, even when the quarantine is lifted and we start getting back to work, I don't think the economy is going to recover. I certainly think if you were a startup right now and you were trying to get your recent round of funding done, forget about that. It's either not going to get funded or all the previous investors are going to get a cram down round, you know, where the valuation is lower than the previous round, or they're just going to go out of business. There's going to be a lot of blood on the streets and M&A activity. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do, I think that the conservative approach would be absent any new revenues, just make sure your cash position is such that you can cover your burn. You know, your monthly burn right now has got to last for a couple of years. And I don't care what company you're in, all your revenue plans are out the, the window at this point and have to be completely reevaluated. And also now's the time to trim the staff, find out who those, you know, star employees are. The, the worst thing you can do though is, is do a riff or do a cut right now and, and just cut a little bit and then find out and tell everybody that's left, hey, we're glad you're still on the team, and then have to do a deeper riff, you know, six months from now. The smart, look, after my, I did a third round, when I raised a round at Conecta, I raised a million dollar Series A, a $12 million B, and the last round was a $17 million round led by Adobe, you know, Granite Ventures. That's $17 million. At that point, I had a million dollar a month burn rate. That money was going to last us a year, a year and a half. I, and this was November of 2000, Alex. So as a chairman of the board, I said, look, we've got to make some hard decisions here. Let's make some cuts. They were like, bring it from 80, you know, from 100 to 80 employees. I was like, no, we're bringing it from 100 employees to 25. We're going to last four to five years with the cash we have and no money. That's the approach you need to take right now, I think, because uh, maybe things will lift in six months, but the economy isn't coming back for at least, as I said, a year to two years minimum. I hate to be a naysayer, but it's better to be prepared. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about your travels. I know that you're a you're, you're a, a global guy. You're always on the edge. That's why you're a wonderful guest on Global Edge Talk. And um, uh, I know that you probably miss a lot of that travel and, and a lot of the conferencing and a lot of uh, conferences uh, that you hold in Tel Aviv and Tokyo and uh, Amsterdam and and uh, Croatia and you know everywhere else. Um, what uh, what sort of has been your prior to to COVID nineteen? What has been your interesting experience? Tell us you know, a couple of um, you know a couple of stories about your interesting experience as it relates to CDO Club. Maybe you know some of the differences you see between different countries and how 
um, that is sort of uh, unraveling and, and um, how it's developing. And also, I know that you've, you, I, I just follow you on Facebook and, and some other social media. I know you're a frequent uh, a guest in Australia. You're, uh, you, you, you get to, uh, to Asia, uh, some Asian countries. Tell us a couple of really interesting stories and how the CDO Club has sort of evolved globally and what are some of the differences you see in there? Yeah, that's a great question and one that no one has asked me yet. I'm, I, actually, that has been the best part of my job because for the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, Alex, there were only, as, as you know, because we met very early on in this uh, process, there were only about 100, 200 people with that exact title, you know, in 2010, 2011. And watching it and actually pushing it, you know, to grow all over the world, the first thing I did was I did an event in London, you know, right after New York, we did an event at the BBC. And then shortly after that, we did one at the studio close to the Sydney Opera House in Sydney. And what was amazing to me in the early days was being, and still to, to is being able to see firsthand the pioneers and the people who've been like way ahead of the curve, you know, the, those exemplars and the people, you know, charged with best practices. And so, for example, in London, you know, I was lucky enough to meet with Mike Bracken, who was the executive director of government digital service there. We gave him the CDO of the year award in London uh, in 2014 for his work. Basically his pitch was, you know, he came in and he inherited 5,000, 6,000 government websites and he turned it all into one. You know, how do you take 6,000 websites and make just one? Well, gov.uk, you know, he wanted to make government services easy to use as Google. He wanted to make government access as simple as going to Amazon. And he did it. I mean, an incredible, incredible job. And in my opinion, he was years ahead of government service in any other country in the world, by far. And then one of his protégés was an American, Paul Shetler. You know, he, he spoke at the event in London at the BBC. And then fast forward, you know, a year, and I meet him in Australia. The day I arrived in Australia, uh, we were doing, going to do our event at the University of Technology in Sydney, the business school there, Frank Gehry building. And I, I turn on the news the day I arrive. I open up the newspaper on the front page of the newspaper is Paul Shetler, the new chief digital officer for all of Australia, you know, pulled out of London, an American guy and reporting directly into the prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull. And I, like I said, I arrived that day in Sydney and I see Paul Shetler shaking hands at the UTS business school with the prime minister of Australia. So that's how important this stuff is, you know, and that's the heady kinds of relationships that we've had where you meet a guy and he sits on a panel one day in London, the next day he's reporting into the prime minister of a country. Same thing in, in Israel. I was giving a speech in Israel, the back of the room, this really, really big guy, like really seven foot tall guy, strong, comes up to me after and says, hey, I'm giving a presentation at Microsoft in Israel tomorrow, can, can you join me? I want you to, to present on what you did. So I get there and arrive, tight, tight security. Turns out it was a presentation in front of all the government ministers of Israel on digital Israel. And, and, and this guy was an ex-Navy SEAL in the Israeli Mossad who was you know, a frightening looking guy, but like really, really smart. They made him the head, the CEO of digital Israel. So, you know, it's just crazy how quickly, you know, these leaders are being called on to take over responsibilities on such a global scale. And that to me is what I miss uh, about traveling. But in a lot of ways, I don't miss getting into airports and airplanes and hotels and taxis. It's been nice not having to travel. And, and that comes from a guy who's got a 
you know, a degree from Columbia in international business. You know, it's been kind of nice these last four months to actually get real work done and not have to hop on another plane. David, you know, the stories are amazing. And I actually would love to invite you back at some time, at some point in time and, and continue this conversation. One last question I have so that, you know, we always try to end our conversations with this question. Uh, there are a lot of global entrepreneurs that may be listening to this conversation. What is your advice? What should you, what, what should be the advice from you who's been all over the world, who's done, who's done digital, uh, traditional, you know, work and so forth. Uh, if I'm an entrepreneur right now at this moment, what should I be doing? You know, I take it to a photography, um, uh, I really love uh, a- uh, amateur enthusiasts. And, and the, the thing that strikes me most about your question is, here's what I, my approach to photography. If you see something that makes you say, hmm, you know what, you don't see that every day, grab your camera, right? If you see something in front of you where you're like, oh, that, that's unusual, grab your camera, take a photo, because most likely no one else has seen it either. And I would say for entrepreneurs, take that same approach. If you see something that you think needs to be done or that can improve efficiencies, increase costs, there are so many ways. It's so inexpensive to start a business today. Just get started. Because I, just, I knew nothing about events 10 years ago. Knew nothing about building a community. I'm a tech guy. You know, I'm an entrepreneur. But as an entrepreneur, when you see a hockey stick growth curve, like I saw in 2011, just go for it. And then once you've done that, You've got to be consistent. You've got to be dedicated. You know, we stuck with this through some pretty tough times. And this is probably, arguably, the toughest time people will ever have to go through. And these are also the optimal times to start new businesses. Because like we talked about in the beginning of the call, all kinds of things that were on the back burner. Now people are seeing just how easily and how quickly these things can be implemented. So there's no better time to be an entrepreneur than right now. What a great, great answer. What a great story. Uh, with your permission, by the way, I would love to feature some of your photographs. I absolutely enjoy them. You are a pro at this. And I totally enjoy some of the angles and some of the things that you do see that are so unusual, that are so unique. So with your permission, we would love to post some of the photographs from you and share it with the audience. Um, sure. Be delighted. Thank you, Alex. And David, thank you so much for being with us. I'd love to continue this conversation. I'd love to invite you back in the, in, in the future. And wishing you good health, stay well, and I know that you and I will see each other very soon. Likewise, Alex. Thanks again for having me. I look forward to joining you again. Thank you, David.